So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today, really lucky to be joined by Basil Oberholzer, who is a macroeconomist from Switzerland. He is a, a prolific writer on macroeconomics and monetary systems. He writes for Social Europe. He is also working at the Swiss Federal Office for the Environment right now, I think. And I, and I also think you're a member of parliament at the Canton St. Gallen in Switzerland. Is that correct, Basil? Yes. Yes, that, that means I, I've just retired from this, but let's say until a few weeks ago, it was correct. So yeah, um, that has to do with with kind of reorientation uh, on my on my activities. But true, yeah, I, I was an, uh, an MP of my canton. Okay, great. I think you were the first parliamentarian that we've spoken to on the show. <laughs> Even though I don't think I'm here in that function, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay, yeah. Well, welcome. So today we're going to be talking about development economics and industrial policy. So when states are pursuing, poor states are pursuing uh, growth policies, it's often necessary for the government to make public investment in in priority sectors, to apply taxes and subsidies in ways that'll, as you say, will simultaneously allow for economies of scale, higher productivity, large-scale employment and demand. But one of the big challenges for industrial policy is that states, policymakers often are facing a shortage of foreign currency. So let's begin there. Can you talk a little bit more about what industrial policy is, some more examples of, of industrial policy, and then why you need foreign currency often to employ an, a, a effective industrial policy? Yeah, all right. You know, I may start with the, with the questions, why is something like industrial policy needed? Because we have many economists who think that that's a wrong way to do. And behind that, there's the idea that the market solves the problem. So the market is welfare optimizing, let market forces play, and whether a rich country or a poor country, you get the optimum in the end. And do not intervene in those market um, forces because that leads just to deviation from the optimum, from the best outcome that a society can achieve. Let's just not not go to the general criticism of this, in my view, very wrong position, but let's apply this to the case of a developing country. And there we, we can ask, okay, uh, let's say we have a, a street market. We have a street market in a, in a poor, let's say, in a, in a big city of a poor country, and we see what is sold there. We have uh, agricultural produce, we have maybe secondhand clothes, we have old mobiles, and so on and so forth. And... We can say that is a perfect market, you know, it's a perfect market with, when there's a scarcity of, say, bananas, banana prices go up and so on, price discovery, it's all perfect, it's optimal, don't intervene, you could say. But in the end, we observe this situation and we see all these people are very poor, uh, selling things on the market is very poor, uh, it's, it's very hard and does not bring you a lot of money, it takes a lot of time and effort, but you never get rich from it, you will always stay poor. On the other hand, uh, you have have the sell uh, the, the buyers who are poor and and can only afford very cheap things so that is a market but people in that market stay poor so what is wrong about that the problem is that markets when we when we speak about perfect markets we just speak about exchange but in in this example in a poor country people with no money uh, want to buy things but they cannot they cannot afford it and that's we are talking when we're talking about optimal markets, we mean exchange. So there's supply and demand, but we do not ask the question where does this income actually come from? And this is why 
there might be a perfect perfect market like in the example I've just described in the street market. But that means that this perfect market is at a very low level. And the, the problem is who is going to invest in that market if nobody has the income to buy what you're going to produce. And then you could say, okay, uh, let's just reduce the prices. But when you have low prices, which may increase demand a bit, then you have no profit. And in, in capitalism, nobody's going to invest if there are no profits. So missing profits and a lack of demand, that's the problem. That is the key constraint that we face in, in developing countries. And there's only one agent who is able to break this constraint, to overcome them. And that is the government. I mean, I'm talking about the government in a very large sense. You know, you can also support private actors, uh, private private agents that they become active in the market. But you need an, an agent, and this is basically the, the public interest, the government, which is also willing to uh, invest if there are no profits immediately, if demand is low currently. But by investing, by starting to produce, step-by-step step, income is created that again creates demand, that increases productivity, that allows to also uh, allows firms to, to get a profit. And this motivates them to invest more and so on and so forth. But it's not the market that does it alone. You need policy, you need industrial policy with all its instruments, such as public investment, as I just said, also what you mentioned, uh, subsidies, taxes in the right places and so on that is industrial policy which allows to bring the market which is at a very low level in developing countries to a higher level by increasing income by increasing purchasing power and so on and this is not something that the market just left alone can deliver and so let's now get to the problem of not having enough foreign currency why does a poor country need foreign currency in order to implement industrial policy yeah in this case that i've just described the the public the government can can invest the public sector because it is it has a, a no monetary system so the country has a currency and that comes from the central bank and from the commercial bank so this money is created when a loan is granted uh, issued to someone and that means that this currency is not limited so Industrial policy, in this sense, does not see any monetary limits. It has maybe organizational, uh, administrative, and planning limits, and so on. But currency is there. But that is about domestic currency. And you ask me the right question, what about foreign currency? And there we have the problem. Let's say we are very successful in conducting industrial policy. So we create jobs, we create in uh, income, we get into a very positive cycle of demand and productivity growth and so on that makes the economy grow. So these workers who get new jobs and uh, get a, a higher income now, they spend part of this income. And that's it's like a rule. It's almost a, <laughs> a law of nature that part of this income go, is spent for imports. So... Um, we would have no limits with industrial policy if all the additional income created uh, was spent in the domestic economy. But part of it is spent abroad because we want to import goods, things that this particular country does not produce. And as I just said, domestic currency is not scarce. It's, it's there in abundance because it can be created by the domestic banking system of which the, the country more or less in, has control. It can, it can guide this system. 
but foreign currency is scarce for a country because foreign currency, usually in most cases US dollars, is not just there. It's not just there for the country to spend as it wishes. So whenever residents of a country spend their income for imports, the country either uses the, the ex currency reserves it has earned from exports, or if there are no currency reserves, it has to incur a loan, it has to incur debt to get access to the foreign currency that it can use to spend on imports. So can I, Basil, can I stop you there for just a sec? Yeah. So just to give an example, like let's say I live in Peru and I want to buy an iPhone. I go to the market, I buy the iPhone in the market with Peruvian currency as the consumer. But now you're saying that on some level, there's also another purchase and that purchase is is coming from the, the government itself and they have to have foreign exchange in order to, in order to allow for my purchase to go through. I, that I don't get. Yeah, that is a, is a very important part because as a purchaser of that iPhone, you spend your, your Peruvian your Peruvian uh, monetary units, and you don't realize as an individual purchaser that someone has to spend has to spend this price, this amount of money also in dollars. You know it comes from abroad, you know in the international market this iPhone is sold and tagged with a price in dollars, but you don't know actually when you pay as an individual yourself what how this comes about, how this uh, transaction is um, eventually conducted. And what happens is that when you want to buy, uh, in, per in Peru, you want to buy uh, an iPhone from abroad, then you spend your Peruvian money. And this money, well, well let's, I come to back to that money, but at the same time, the Peruvian central bank has to use reserves, or if there are no reserves, it has to get indebted to earn the money, to earn the US dollars that it can use to pay for the iPhone you want to buy in US dollars. So in some way, there is a double payment. That is, you as an individual, you pay in Peruvian money, but then your central bank also has to make this payment in dollar. We may not have the, the time here to go into all the details, but you can show that the accounting system and the international monetary system is such that this payment takes place twice. We cannot just say that the payment in Peruvian money and the payment in US dollars is the same. It's two payments that add to one another. And the problem is, on the one hand, the Peruvian central bank, and as the Peruvian central bank is representative of the country, gets indebted to for you to buy an iPhone. That's one payment. And the second payment is you pay in, in Peruvian money, but this money is lost. It goes nowhere. So no. if you ask, okay, I have paid in Peruvian money, but uh, the foreign uh, iPhone seller, Apple, gets a payment in dollars. So where does my own Peruvian money go? And the answer is it goes nowhere. It's deleted out of the, the bookkeeping system of the Peruvian monetary system. That is astonishing. It's surprising, but it's, it's, it's a fact. And that means that the country that imports things, loses money, loses a part of its domestic currency. It's like a loss of income because uh, when I spend or you spend this money for the iPhone, that means you don't spend it for other goods at home. 
and this money cannot be spent anymore because it's deleted. It's deleted out of the monetary system. So the double payment, and that is a bit complicated, I'm sorry, but the double payment is the central bank gets indebted in US dollar and at the same time, the whole country uses the national currency and this national currency cannot be used for, for domestic goods anymore. And since there is less demand now for domestic goods, uh, this means that eventually also fewer of these domestic goods will be produced. And that is a loss and that makes the economy, the Peruvian economy weaker. Does that make sense to you? Um, it, a little bit, but I actually, I actually don't think I'm 100% clear. So let's, let's try it again. So I go to the market and there's a person selling iPhones at the market. I pay this person 100 Peruvian units of currency. I now have the phone. They have the Peruvian currency. You were saying that that currency doesn't go anywhere. It's deleted. But doesn't the shop owner have that currency? And aren't they able to use it to purchase things they need? And so, so there is still demand. What, what's wrong with my story? Well, I can ask you the question. Um, you go to the market, you buy the iPhone. And where does, where does this money go? Where do you think does, does the money go? Of course, in the market, it goes to the local trader. But in the end, uh, this money, that at, at some point, there is the payment abroad. There's the payment to, to the US or wherever. And there, a local resident makes this payment. And when this local resident makes this payment in Peruvian currency, where do you think, where does this money go? Do you know someone who receives it? I, you know I guess it? I sort of imagined that they would go to a currency exchange and they would exchange per, the Peruvian currency for U.S. dollars and then pay Apple those U.S. dollars. Is that wrong? Um, yeah, um, that is, I mean, if you, you, need, you need someone, there's, there's a foreign exchange market and there it's true what you say. Uh, different currency are exchanged. But, but let's, let's keep the story aside because... We could show uh, via complicated ways that we end up in a very similar place. But okay. let me explain from a different angle. If you export, let, if, you exp if you're in Peru and say you export mining produce, let's say gold, you export gold. So in the international market, you earn money in US dollars, most probably. But then you are the exporter and you want to receive these export returns. But you don't receive it in US dollars. You receive it in local, in national currency, in Peruvian currency. And that means what happens is the US dollars, they go to the central bank, into the central bank's reserves. And at the same time, this central bank gives you, provides you with the money in local currency, in national currency. That money is created from scratch, out of zero, out of nothing. So you get newly created money because you need it for your domestic transactions. You cannot do them in dollars. So the central bank gives you currency, in, uh, gives you its own currency. And that is new money. You understand? That comes from nowhere. That is how the system works. It can create new money. But then when we have an import, exactly the opposite happens. That money is now destroyed again. You import, you, you pay it, and it goes, it disappears from the balance sheet of, of the banks, of the banking system. And the opposite happens compared to the export, that now we have to pay from the reserves or with a new loan 
the price in US dollars and at the same time local currency disappears again. You know, that is what happens when you have an export surplus, when Peru has an export surplus, the monetary system of the country blows up, if you like. More money, more national currency is created. When you have a trade deficit, you import more than you export. More money is destroyed in the Peruvian economy. And that is, this system is very elastic. But it means that countries which have constant trade deficits, and there are many among uh, developing countries, there are many, those countries, they lose currency. Every time they have a surplus imports, um, they lose currency. That's the problem because it weakens the economy. I see, that's very clear now. And so if you don't have foreign currency on reserve, it's then difficult to do industrial policy because the state needs foreign currency to buy, say, uh, equipment to stimulate the economy, or is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we have to think about what actually happens when we, when we go into debt to too high amounts. What happens is that at some point, the foreign creditors doubt that you're able to service this debt. So they will start asking for higher interest rates. And at some point, if your deficit continues and you have to demand for more and more loans, at some point, nobody will come back and, and lend you more. So what then happens is you are forced to devaluate, you to, to devaluate your currency because no, in the international market, nobody wants your currency. And that means you devaluate it or, and the currency depreciates. And suddenly, foreign prices are higher for the national economy because in, in domestic currency, measured in domestic currency, foreign prices are much higher now. So that triggers inflation in the domestic economy. And when currency depreciation is very strong, you can even get into hyperinflation in the most extreme case. And at some point, you may, the country may go bankrupt because uh, the foreign debt that is caused measured in foreign currency, US dollars, measured in national currency is much more because your currency has become so weak and it becomes heavier and heavier on your shoulders. And at some point, you are not able to service your debt anymore. And then you're bankrupt, kind of. And then what more, can, what more that, is, uh, that can happen is that uh, wealth owners, they want to bring out the money of the country because they think, ooh, this, this economy is in trouble. Let's bring it to a tax haven, wherever, Switzerland or, or wherever the money should not be. And they bring it there. And that makes the country even weaker and uh, devaluates the currency even more and brings even more inflation and so on. That is called the currency crisis. And that's a point uh, the price signals do not work at all anymore. You have too high inflation and so on. And it, in the most extreme case, it can lead to a breakdown of the economy. So this is what you want to prevent at any price. And that means that you have to be careful not to accumulate too much foreign debt. But that is a problem because whenever poor countries grow and implement industrial policies, then they face growing incomes. But part of that income, as explained, is spent for imports. And growing imports means trade deficit and means uh, growing external debt. So that is the vicious cycle that starts then and poor countries need to avoid it. And in order to avoid it, they cannot grow too fast. Because if they grow too fast, they get into this trouble. They have too hard, they have trade deficits. And this means that these developing countries are kind of caught 
into this trap um, into it's called the the balance of payments restriction so they cannot grow faster than their balance of payments allows if they have very strong exports countries are allowed to grow stronger because then they can afford more imports that will come as soon as the economy grows but when exports are weak and you grow then you get into trade deficits and what you can do is you want to do industrial policy to strengthen your exports but then at least for for the time being industrial policy requires more imports of machines and equipment and technology and all that and that suddenly gives you a trade deficit and you can at the same time you cannot allow this trade deficit trade deficit so what do you do as a poor country and this is a very difficult trap and we need seriously need to discuss uh, reforms uh, that can that can relax this balance of payments constraint. Right. Well, well, let's do that now because you have a proposal that, it, as far as I understand, builds on some of the conversations that Keynes was having at Bretton Woods. But what is your proposal to reform the this system? Yeah, um, it's not so easy to explain it within this podcast. So bear with me <laughs> if my explanations are not clear <laughs> enough. But I think and, and if it's not clear, don't it, worry. I'll stop you and, and, and ask you to slow down. But let's begin. Let's perfect. try. Perfect. And if you get part of it, that's already very good. So, so let us think. We discussed before when a country faces a trade deficit, so has more imports than exports. Um, those payments for those imports are made twice: once in foreign currency, once in domestic currency. And this domestic currency, unfortunately, is lost for the to the economy. So let's say the country remembers these Bretton Woods negotiations that were there with Keynes, with the, with the Americans and so on, but there was not that system that Keynes thought about. But let's say this country now remembers what was discussed there and tries to find a solution. How can this Bretton Woods plan, the Keynes plan, that's what the proposal he had back then, how can it be implemented by a single country? without having to wait for national agreement to be achieved. So let's say a single country um, decides to uh, establish a new institution. It's a public institution, and this institution is now responsible for all the payments. So let's say, again, we want to import an iPhone, and I make this payment in my national currency. And this payment now is made to the new institution. And that is the first important step step because thanks to this this step um, the currency is not lost anymore the new institution receives this payment by you or me the one of us who wants to import this iphone and it's not lost anymore but the institution makes use of this currency to invest it in the national economy so by this step the national economy is strengthened it builds productive capacity that allows it in the future to be stronger with its exports and so on. So that allows to create new income in contrast to the current situation where this the loss of this currency means that income is going lost, so that demand actually shrinks. And then this institution is also responsible for the international payments. So it has to, to make the payment in dollar for the, for the iPhone as as it was before. So the institution makes this payment and for this it has, let's say it has to also access the loan because it doesn't have any reserves. 
So it, it accesses the loans in US dollars. So you can say what has changed. It's still, it, the country still is a debt, is in debt. Why? By this new institution. But what has changed is that this is the liability side of the institution. It has debt in US dollars. But at the same time, it also has something on its asset side. And that is the investment it has made in domestic currency. So, and there it now has real assets. It, let's say it has set up a factory or uh, an infrastructure project, whatever. And that is a new asset that the institution, and since it is a public institution, the, co the whole country now owns. And this new asset matches the foreign debt. So net, there is no debt. There is gross debt in US dollars, but this gross debt is backed by the new asset. Let's, let us show with an example. So as we had, as we had this case, I import a new, uh, a new iPhone. And my payment goes to the new institution. As an individual, I do not even notice, but the payment system is programmed in a way that this payment first is received by the new institution. This new institution completes the payment by accessing a loan in US dollars and the foreign exporter, Apple, is, is credited with this, with this US dollars. The payment is complete. So now the institution has at its disposal the currency, the, the money in national currency. And it decides to um, build with it, let's say, a solar power plant. And this solar power plant is now an asset that will produce solar power that can be sold in the market and so on. So that means it in the future will generate, will generate uh, returns. Uh, for uh, So these assets generate returns. So this institution now is indebted in dollars, but it has also a new asset, which is the solar power plant. And this means that the foreign creditor knows, ah, this institution now has an asset. My loan is not going into a bottomless hole, but there is something productive coming out of that, of that loan. So for foreign creditor, for foreign creditors, it is not a problem anymore when there is a deficit because in the loans they, these creditors make are safe. They are safe uh, because they are backed in, in, in case uh, it's necessary. They are um, this, the country can sell those law can sell those assets and the loan can be repaid. So that's the basic idea of it. And thanks to this new mechanism, when a country runs can, um, trade deficits, that does not harm anymore because this the new institution receives money in the amount of this deficit in domestic currency and it is going to reinvest this money in the domestic economy and it matches the new debt that it had to incur abroad. So that makes the system very stable. That makes it most, it can afford more deficits and it can afford also a stability of the exchange rate because there is no more pressure on the exchange rate because that is, is backed and there is no uh, no investor feels a need to put pressure on this exchange rate. Let's leave it there for now. I hope this is more or less clear, but otherwise just ask. No, it's actually very clear. So I guess it, it's so clear and it makes so much sense. I, I guess historically, you know, why don't we have this system now? <laughs> yeah, very much justified questions because 
Of course, that is what I also ask myself, and this is what I am asked by many people. And I think it's the, the truth is less far than we might think. It, it's that this reform, you know, it's it's clear to understand. It's possible to understand it, but to derive it, it's not that easy. To derive it from the idea of of Keynes to this one country solution, such that it can be implemented individually, that's not so easy. But it has been derived by uh, Schumacher, who was an economist back then, and Bernard Schmidt, the French economist who was also developed it actually at the beginning of this century. So the solution is not old, it's new. And I think it still has to pour into the into research, into the literature, because all new ideas need some time to get popular for first economists, researchers, and then the broader public to get familiar with. And uh, and that is has not happened yet. So this still has to happen, happen. And then if once you implement it, of course, I mean you have as anything you have to test it in practice. You will see are there side effects that. Uh, that we did not foresee, you know, we we need to engineer it well, that, that this solution can be implemented. And we are not there yet. But that is exactly the reason why I find it so important to to accelerate and keep this discussion going. What would have to happen for it to be implemented by one country? Would it simply be the president and the parliament of that country says we're going to set up this institution or does there have to be international cooperation in order to get this thing done? In my opinion, that is possible unilaterally. So a country, the president or whoever, uh, what, whatever are the, the legal procedures in that country can decide on its own. Well, basically, you know, you have this institution, but as an individual, you do not notice anything. You make your payment and it arrives uh, with the payee and that's it. You do not actually notice that something change. That is an advantage that makes implement, implementation very smooth. At the same time, you have to deal with certain detailed questions regarding what about banking regulation, um, what about the foreign exchange market. Uh, basically, this foreign exchange market does not exist anymore because the new institution separates the market for foreign currency and the market for domestic currency. So that's this is how you can also abolish pressure on the exchange rate. But I think there you have some like institutional, administrative, and maybe also legal questions to solve. And I cannot give you an answer in all details, but my feeling is that it, it is possible to implement it by one country. And it is also, how can I say, you need institutions that are afford, that are able to to bear this change, this institutional change. But in general, I think institutionally and technically, it should not be too demanding. I, I mean, I hear policy proposals, but I think they are much more complicated. 